In connection with God's instruction regarding the seventh commandment, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Vila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedelium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second, it, second river is Gihon. The same is it that, in, that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it, and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib 
which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and many others as well that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41. What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same, and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the struggle to be faithful and pure in keeping the seventh commandment is a struggle that is shared by all people. It is all conscientious Christians. No one is exempt from this struggle. Men struggle to be pure and holy in their thoughts and in their viewing of women. And women struggle to be pure and holy. Young people and young adults struggle to keep this seventh commandment, and old people struggle to be pure with regard to the seventh commandment. Strong men and strong women have to fight daily against breaking the seventh commandment And weak men and weak women have to struggle against it. 
This is not just a recent struggle that the Church of Jesus Christ is going through, struggles with regard to keeping the Seventh Commandment, but the pages of history are replete with examples of men and women who broke this commandment, who were then guilty before God as they broke this commandment, and who had to seek forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, who alone is able to cover sins against the seventh commandment. And while we note that the church historically has had struggles with regard to this commandment, the church presently struggles even more so with regard to purity in the seventh commandment. And the proof of this is the number of broken marriages in the world and even in the church of Jesus Christ. How hard the devil is working to have God's people either set aside entirely the seventh commandment or at the very least lower the standard and the requirement of the seventh commandment. And so we look this morning at a subject that is very sensitive, but a commandment that at the same time is relevant. We look especially at the seventh commandment as it applies to marriage. Holy marriage. First, we'll see that this is a creation ordinance. Second, then, we'll see God's call that he gives unto purity. And then third, we'll look at God's word to sinners. And that third point, we'll more so than normal use quotations directly from God's word to see what God's word is Sinners, creation ordinance, a call to purity, a word for sinners. For us to understand, beloved, this seventh commandment and why it is that we struggle to keep this seventh commandment, we do well to go back to the beginning when God created Adam and Eve in the garden and then to learn certain truths, certain principles that God set forth in the garden. And then when we learn what God performed in the garden, then we can see why it is that we are why it is that we have these desires for physical intimacy. So we're going to start with some simple call them truths from Genesis chapter 2 and then from that build up into the the truths regarding the seventh commandment. The first truth that we note from Genesis chapter 2 is that God created. And not just that God created the world and the planets and the sun and the moon. Not just that God created the animals, but that God shaped man. Mankind is not simply the result of an evolutionary process 
Man is not simply the survival of the fittest, having adapted to the circumstances of life and grown from a more primitive state of being to a more advanced state of being, but man has been created by God himself. Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And God created man in a special way. Man was shaped in the image of God. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. God created man so that in a creaturely way, man manifested the holiness, the righteousness, and the knowledge of the Almighty God. God created man. Number two, man was alone. Adam, as he was shaped by God out of the dust of the garden was alone. Adam had no partner. Adam had no life mate. Adam had no human friend. And not only was it the case that Adam was alone in the garden, but also this. God brought Adam to the point where he understood that he was alone. It's remarkable how God brings Adam to that understanding. God already knew that Adam was alone. Genesis 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. God already had an understanding of the fact that Adam was lonely in the garden. But Adam did not yet understand that. And so God then brought Adam to that point where he could understand that which God already did know. And so God gave the commandment then for Adam to number and to name all of the animals as the animals passed by him. And through that activity to which God had called Adam, Adam himself came to understand that he, as created by God, was alone. Verse 20, Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. Three, we learn from Genesis that God met Adam's need. God provided for Adam a wife. Genesis 2, verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs, his ribs, and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Adam did not shape his wife. Adam was not given a say-so 
in what figure his wife would be, in what attributes she would have or she wouldn't have. But Adam was sleeping. While Adam was sleeping, God shaped the woman. And God brought that woman unto Adam. This was the first marriage. Marriage is not an ordinance that came after the fall into sin. Marriage was not given as a solution for sin or a way to remedy sinful desires of man. But marriage was given before the fall into sin. Fourth, these two genders are different one from another, but at the same time complementary one of another. Different, but complementary. God created man and woman. There are now two genders. 2 verse 23, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew is she shall be Isha because she is taken out of Ish. She is different from the man made out of the man. And so there are differences then, God ordained differences between Ish and Isha, between man and between woman. These were not differences that Adam learned. These were not differences that were shaped by culture or Adam's understanding of this is what it means to be a man and to be masculine. Nor was it that Eve had her womanhood shaped by culture or by society that, well, society has taught me that this is what it is to be a woman, so therefore I will behave accordingly. No, these were differences that God Himself gave unto Adam and Eve. God made the man to be man, and God made the woman to be woman. Contrary, that is, to the teaching of today's world, that there is no objective difference between man and woman, and that the only way that men are masculine and women are feminine is because of learned behavior. It's because little girls are taught to be little girls, the world would say, and that's the only reason then that girls grow up feminine. It's because boys are taught to be little boys. So if you'd simply teach them something different, or at the very least allow them to choose whether they would prefer to be masculine or whether they would prefer to be feminine, goes the teaching of the world. God created them, Isha, out of Ish. Woman, out of man. Two different genders, and yet at the same time, these genders were complementary one for another. God created the woman in such a way, the Bible tells us, that she could be and help meet 
for him. Not one word, help meet. Two words, a help who is meet, who is suitable for Adam. There was a need that Adam had in his life, and that need in his life could only be met by this woman who was in help, who was meet for him. Another man in Adam's life would have been insufficient. It wasn't simply that Adam needed a friend, and it didn't matter whether that friend was male or female. It would not have worked for God to create another man and put that man in Adam's life and have those two men live together. But Adam needed a woman. And so God gave unto Adam that woman. And the same then applies unto Eve. Eve, different from her husband, and yet Eve needed her husband. There were needs that Eve had that another woman would not have been able to fulfill. And so God created the man different from the woman, yet complementary unto the woman. God created. God created man alone and led him to see his need. God met that need. God created genders, two Genders different, but complementary. And now this, beloved. We see that God did all of this for the good of His covenant. That's why God created two genders. That's why God created each and Isha, so that man and woman, as they would come together in that holy state of marriage, would be used by God Himself for the advancement and the development of His covenant from one generation to the next generation. God's Word in Genesis 1. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. That is a significant part of how Adam and Eve complemented each other. They had physical desires, fleshly desires for intimacy and for love. And God created the woman in such a way that the woman would be able to fill those fleshly desires that Adam had. And the same then for Adam as he stood in relationship to the woman, that the woman had desires and God created the man in such a way as a physical human being that that physical man could meet the physical needs of that woman, Eve. And remember, beloved, this is all prior to the fall into sin. These desires that Adam and Eve had one for another, that they too became one flesh, was not an effect of corrupt and depraved desires. But these were good desires. 
These were desires that God had created Adam with and God had created Eve with and God created them with these desires and brought them together so that they too could become one flesh. And He did that for the sake of His covenant. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's the wonder, wonder, beloved, that God has taken two realities and God in His wisdom has tied these two realities together. The reality on the one hand is the desire for physical love and intimacy that God gives unto husbands and unto wives. And the reality on the other hand is the bringing forth of children into this world. And God has taken these two realities and God in His infinite wisdom has tied these two realities together so that the man and the woman, as the man and the woman in the state of marriage come together in that closest act of unity, of selflessness, of giving unto their spouse. God is pleased to use that to be the means by which covenant children come into this world. And God establishes His covenant with believers and with their seed. It's beyond human comprehension. But how amazing it is as we stand here and adore the wisdom of God that God is pleased to use such love, such closeness, such unity, such oneness as the means by which His covenant is propagated from one generation to the next. Let us never then allow the world to control our thinking about the relationship between these two realities that we have spoken of. That on the one hand, God gives to husband and wife unity, love, and closeness, physical intimacy. And on the other hand, God crowns that intimacy with children. You see, the world would take those two realities and the world would separate them. And the world would say, physical intimacy, that's, that's a good thing. You want that? You can have that. But children, well, they're a burden. Children are going to stand in the way of your success. Children are going to stand in the way of the advancement of your career. Children are going to take away happiness out of your life. And so because the world has a very low view of children, the world has taken these two acts that God has joined together, and the world is doing its utmost to rend them apart. You want to have physical intimacy? Fine, have your physical intimacy. And here's the means by which you can have your physical intimacy. And it doesn't matter, the world would say, whether you are married or whether you are single. Have your physical intimacy, and here is the means by which you can have that physical intimacy without the burden of children. 
Beloved, let us not let what the God has taken and joined together and permit the world to rend these two things apart. This is not to say that the only purpose for which God created physical intimacy is the bringing forth of children into this world. This is not to say that every use of a device to prevent having children is necessarily sinful. But this is to say that God in His wisdom tied these two things together, bringing forth of children and love in the married state. And so let us understand that God has knit these two together. Let us love the fact that God crowns physical intimacy with His blessing of children. And let us be thankful for that. How amazing that God is pleased to develop His covenant in such a way. Understanding that reality, then God calls his children unto purity. Heidelberg Catechism in answer 109 helps us understand this call that God gives to purity by telling us what God forbids. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? The answer, since both Our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost. He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids, notice all the things He forbids, unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. All unchaste actions are forbidden by God in this commandment. That includes certainly then all outward and all physical forms of infidelity, of adultery, all inappropriate touching of someone who is not your spouse, all outward or all actions includes also what we look at with our eyes what we see on the television, what we look at on our phones. All uncleanness is accursed of God. But this commandment is far more than just these outward and physical actions. But God is concerned about in this commandment, as in all commandments, is your heart. What are the desires and the inclinations of your heart? The Catechism says, God forbids all unchaste thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Thoughts and desires. That's where obedience to this commandment begins. Obedience to the seventh commandment doesn't start simply with curbing one's outward behavior, keeping 
oneself pure and unspotted doesn't start with, well, I'm, I'm simply not going to engage in that type of outward physical activity, though it includes that, but it starts within one's heart. What are the desires and the yearnings of my heart? Affairs begin not at the bar, not at the workplace meeting, not at the gym with the trainer, but affairs start in the heart. When there is dissatisfaction and disgruntlement in one's own heart, I'm dissatisfied with my spouse. I'm upset at my husband or at my wife. My spouse no longer meets my needs. My spouse no longer loves me and cherishes me and pursues me anymore. And then I start to feel sorry for myself and think that I'm worthy of such love. And really, my spouse should be giving more attention and more care unto me. And then that self-pity justifies it in my mind. Well, it's okay then for me to let my mind wander and think about pleasure with someone else. Affairs don't start at the bar, at the work meeting, or in the gym. Affairs start in the heart. It is when my heart is not one with God, and it is when I am not seeking and pursuing the spouse that God has given unto me, that then the devil comes in. And he seeks to justify it. It's okay. You deserve it. The Catechism also speaks of whatever can entice men. At the very end of answer 109, and whatever can entice men thereto, God forbids. Here the Catechism pleads with the Christian sister to dress in such a way that she does not purposefully or even ignorantly entice men in the way that she dresses. I understand the difficulty in that regard. That It's hard to find modest clothing. But for a love of your brother in Christ. Remember, when clothes shopping, that God forbids whatever would entice men thereto. Positively, God calls us unto purity. In this commandment, He requires, answer 108, that we live chastely and temperately whether in holy wedlock or in single life. The highest, yea, the perfect example of living chastely and temperately is found in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, married to the church, married to the church from all eternity, from before the foundations of 
the world. He chose in wisdom His bride. Married to an unfaithful church. A church that has rebelled against Him. A church that has been guilty of infidelity. A church that turns against Him, murmurs and complains about His provisions unto her. A church that goes a-whoring after other gods. And yet the love of our Savior Jesus Christ is such that He lives purely committed unto her. He loves His church so much that His love for her is unconditional. He did not put stipulations in place and say, I will love the church if and only if the church is faithful unto me and is pure unto me and seeks me and pursues me. But Jesus Christ in an unconditional, selfless love condescended into this world took on human flesh and died for an unfaithful bride. That's love. And that's what it means to live chastely before Jehovah God. And so the call then unto husbands and wives is to live chastely and temperately one with another in the the state of marriage. That includes then giving of yourself unto one another. Not withholding yourself physically from each other, but remember God created man and God created woman in such a way that they desire one another and these two became one flesh. Hebrews 13 verse 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. To the person living in the single state who desires marriage, but in God's wisdom has not yet been given marriage, God's call to you as well is to live chastely and temperately in the single state. And how hard the devil works on those in the single state to have them begin to feel sorry for themselves and think, this is unfair. I have these yearnings. I have these desires. And I want to fulfill these desires, but God hasn't given unto me a spouse. So because God hasn't given me this spouse, then I'm going to permit myself this indulgence in this area. Nobody else will know about it. Nobody else needs to understand what's going on. But because God has given me a commandment that is beyond my ability to bear up under, I will permit myself this or that pleasure in the single life. So the devil would work upon the single people. The word of God to the single person is, you can. Not of yourself, certainly, but with God's strengthening grace. You can live holy and chastely in the single state. Ephesians 3, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above 
all that you could ask or even think. Doubt not the efficacy of God's grace to work in your heart so that you may live chastely and temperately. What is then God's word to sinners? Look at two different groups of sinners. First, those walking impenitently in sin. Second, to those sorry for sins. To those walking impenitently in sin, perhaps for a day, perhaps for a week, perhaps for years, hear the word of the God word of God with regard to how serious this sin is. The sin against the seventh commandment leads to emptiness, it leads to death, it leads to hell. Proverbs 5, verses 4 through 5. But her end, speaking of the end of the one with the promiscuous woman, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. How serious is it? So serious that you will give your honor unto others and your years unto the cruel. Turn from her, God says, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth and thy labors be in the house of a stranger. Proverbs 5. Understanding that the way of impenitence and adultery leads to Hell, the calling of God's word is to repent, confess it, and turn from it. 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Turn from such wickedness and run from such wickedness. With regard to the seventh commandment, God does not say, stand there and fight it. God does not say, stay where you're at, you're strong of yourself, you can resist it. But with regard to the seventh commandment, God says, run. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18a, flee. Fornication. The Heidelberg Catechism detest it, hate it, recognize it as an enemy that is seeking to kill you and bring your soul down to death and hell. Hate it, detest it, flee from it, and confess it. What is God's word to the one who is sorry for sins against 
the seventh commandment. We take the time now to bring a word to those who have broken the seventh commandment and who recognize and are sorry for their breaking of the seventh commandment. We take the time to bring a word to those who are sorry for sins against this commandment because especially sins against this commandment are are grievous. They're gross. And they can leave a person feeling ashamed for a long, long time afterward. It takes but a moment to commit the sin, and then for years afterward, there is grief of heart of sins that are committed against this commandment. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18b says, Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, that is, outside of the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And so understanding then that violations of the seventh commandment are against my own body, that's why then there's this sense of dirtiness and and guilt and shame that accompanies sins of such a nature. And so understanding that reality of that burden, grievous to be borne, what is God's word then to those who understand that they've sinned in this regard and they are sorry with a broken and a contrite heart, they are sorry unto God for such sins. To those who sinned just recently, maybe last night, maybe Friday night, God's word to the one who has sinned just recently is the word of Jesus Christ to the woman who has caught in an adulterous act. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And to those who sinned a while ago, years ago, and who still feel at times a sense of shame over those sins, then with the psalmist make this plea in Psalm 25, verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. And making that plea, remember not, O Lord, the sins of my youth. Hear now the answer of God through Isaiah the prophet. I, even I, am he that blotteth out transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins.
to any burdened with sin and the guilt of it. Hear the word of 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, how undeserving we are of the least of Thy blessings. How dirty, how spotted, how polluted we are by nature. Unable to come into Thy thrice holy presence without being consumed by Thy holiness. And yet we believe by faith that Jesus Christ has taken our wickedness, our sins, and our curse upon Himself, that He became spotted, guilty, and died on our behalf. And now He gives unto us white robes, whereby we are holy in Thy sight. Assure us of this truth by the operations of the Spirit in our heart. Amen.